A couple of the questions we'll be addressing as we talk about women in ministry, are they allowed to minister in the church? And uh, you'd you'd think we wouldn't have to ask a question like that, but we do uh, because of what we see and have seen in many churches in the past. What positions are they allowed to fill? And what about those women should keep silent in the church passages? And we're going to tackle them head on. So I want you to have your pens and paper and journals ready uh, to write some things and, uh, and uh, please get a download or something you know, on the internet or something uh, because you may have to go over it carefully again. I had a university student stop me just before the service and he said, the way I handled last week, he said it was kind of like a university lecture. And he said, I, I downloaded it and then I just pause and I go back and I look at it and he said, oh, it just made so much sense. So do whatever works for you. But let's start by laying out the groundwork here on what women did do in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We only have time uh, for, uh, I'll pick two out of the Old Testament, I'll pick two out of the New Testament, and, uh, and we'll see what they were doing. And the first one that I want to just pick, uh, uh, I want to reveal or bring out to you is Deborah from the Old Testament. And every reading of her story reveals that she was exceptional. She was a prophet. She was a judge in Israel. And it says in Judges 4.4, and you may want to read this story. It's a, it's a fascinating story. She was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. And she was judging Israel at that time. She was to her generation what Moses was to his generation. When it says judge, it doesn't mean judge the way we understand. Uh, There were several functions in that particular title in ancient Israel. So she led the Israelites in a great battle victory over Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. In fact, she said to Barak, not Barak Obama, but another Barak, uh, she said, <laughs> she said to him, I want you to go and take on the Canaanites. And he said, no, I'm not doing it unless you go with me. And she said, fine, I'll go with you. But if I go, I get the credit. I, a woman, get the credit. He said, that's cool with me, but you better go with me. And uh, so after the victory, uh, she wrote a song filled with tremendous theology. It's recorded in the scripture. She's very powerful. So we see that uh, she spoke for God as a prophet. She rendered decisions in law court as a judge. She exercised leadership over the entire spiritual, social aspects of Israel. And as a military commander, brought Israel to a decisive victory. Then there's another woman by the name of Huldah. And uh, I think we need some uh, daughters named after her. I haven't heard anybody. Uh, I've heard Hilda's, but I've heard no Huldas. And uh, I think we need some Huldas. King Josiah, this is the context, was one of the great spiritual reformers of Israel, going about the country, tearing down idols and altars and removing uh, spirit, uh, spiritists and, and mediums uh, from around the country. And uh, one day Josiah sent Shaphan, uh, who was his secretary, to Hilkiah the high priest with instructions to begin temple repairs. And in the meeting, Hilkiah handed over the scriptures, or the, the book of the law, as it was called in scripture, which had been lost during former uh, reigns. So his, fa- his grandfather was Manasseh and his father was Joram. They were both evil kings, but along comes this Josiah. He's a, a deeply devout um, uh, a follower of Jehovah God, and uh, and uh, so 
here they, they weren't even using the book of the law anymore. And it was lost in the temple. Idols had been set up in the temple. It was a horrible uh, disgrace what had happened. And so Shaphan goes to the temple, talks to Elkiah the high priest. And the high priest says, guess what? We found the book of the law. We found the scriptures in the temple. No kidding. That'd be like coming to Southland and saying, we can't find a Bible in this place. That'd be, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? In the temple, they couldn't find a Bible. In the whole thing, there was one, and they couldn't find it. It hadn't been used for two reigns already under Manasseh and Jor- Joram. And now they found it. It must have been dust cover, you know, dust must have covered and everything. And he blew it off, and he, said, and he takes this, and he hands it over to Shaphan, the secretary. He said, you might want to read this thing. They were supposed to, the kings were supposed to read it every day. That was an instruction from God, so that they would follow God. But they had, uh, they had gone off track. So anyway, Shaphan takes it, reads it, is horrified by what he reads about the blessings and the curses. If you do such and such, this is what's going to happen to you, good and bad. And he's horrified because he knows they're in trouble. He takes it to King Josiah, and he says, Josiah, you might want to read this book of the law. And, uh, and Josiah says, you mean they found it? Yes, they found it. Well, why don't you read it to me? So Shaphan, the secretary, reads it to King Josiah. He tears his clothes. He is horrified by what he says. And he says, surely God's judgment is about to come down upon us. And uh, so this is how he responds to that reading. He says in 2 Kings 22, he says, Go and inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found, great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Now, when he said, go inquire of the Lord for me, this is how they would inquire. They would would send to a prophet. The prophet would, would listen to the Lord. The Lord would speak to the prophet and the prophet would speak back to the king. That's how he inquired of the Lord. Now, He was in a good position because in his kingdom there were at least five key, uh, five key prophets that he could choose from. He'd quite a uh, quite a group there, and you see them uh, listed on the screens. Jeremiah, you recognize that name? (laughs) You sure do. And Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Well, what can you tell me about those four, uh, those four prophets? One, they were all men. And two, they all had books of the Bible named after them. So their prophecies were recorded and then named after them. But there's a fifth one there. It's the one in yellow. Huldah. And Huldah was a prophet. She was a woman. And she had no book of the Bible named after her. And guess who King Josiah, one of the great reformers, spiritual reformers of Israel, of Judah, guess who he chooses? Not Jeremiah, but Huldah. That's very significant that he would do that. And uh, a female prophet, it says, Hilkiah the priest went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom. Huldah was not chosen because there were no men available. She was chosen because she was truly exceptional among the prophets. And she informed the king... In response, when she listened to God, she informed the king that indeed God's wrath was great against Judah, but because Josiah had humbled himself before God, he would not experience the judgment of God that was coming. So that's uh, that's Huldah. Now we've looked at two in the Old Testament. Let's uh, look at two in the New Testament. The first one I want to look at is Junia. 
And uh, how many have heard of Junia? Well, you'll, uh, I'm sure many of you have read her. You just, you just kind of glanced over it. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the what? Help me, church. Prominent among the what? Apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. And uh, Junia is a woman's name, a female name, but because women weren't supposed to be apostles, or aren't supposed to be apostles, uh, the way many people believe, someone copying the letter to the Romans changed the spelling so that Junia, female, became Junius, male, as in the NIV. I have uh, NIV, now apparently there's a new NIV, and uh, somebody showed it to me just in the break now that they have on their little iPod, and uh, there it, it has been corrected back to Junia. But in mine, it says Junius, and many of the translations have it. But not all of them. Um, uh, ES, the ESV, the NLT, the NCV, the KJV, the NKJV, the NRSV, all have the feminine form, Junia, written in there. And she was, and, and this is really incredible, because Junia, a woman was not only an apostle, it says she was prominent, or as some translation says, outstanding among the, pro, uh, among the apostles. That's incredible, isn't it? Chris Ostom, uh, a, an early church father, who read and preached in Greek, said about Junia, so he's much closer to that time era, and you'll, uh, you'll understand by my quotation then, that he actually believed this was Junia, a woman, not, a, not Junius, a man, and that she indeed was an apostle. He said, and I quote, How great the wisdom of this woman, that this woman must uh, uh, have been, that she was even deemed worthy of the title of apostle. That's what an early church father said about her. Obviously, she was not one of the twelve. You say, well, hey, wait a minute. I thought there were twelve apostles. Oh, no, Scripture talks about more apostles than that. Uh, when uh, Judas died, then they voted and they, uh, they brought in another uh, uh, apostle. Paul was an apostle. Barnabas, Epaphroditus was, and uh, so was Andronicus. There were many apostles. The gift, uh, the, the gift, the spiritual gift of apostleship didn't end just because the disciples died, the, the original 12. And here we have an example of a female apostle. I think that's very significant. And the spiritual gift of apostleship includes or involved things like uh, evangelizing, teaching, preaching, establishing and leading churches, and those kinds of very significant leadership and teaching roles within the church. And she evidently was outstanding among the apostles in some way or form like that. Well, not only Junia, but here's a second one from the New Testament that we see. And her name was Priscilla. Another nice name. And uh, there was Aquila and Priscilla. How many of you have heard of Aquila and Priscilla? Okay, more of you are familiar with Aquila and Priscilla out of the book of Acts. And... um, and they were, uh, this was a husband-wife team. Aquila was the man and, uh, or, and the husband. And they were kicked out of Rome when Emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, ordered all Jews to evacuate. And then they became acquainted with Paul in Corinth. And uh, this friendship led to traveling with Paul to Ephesus in, my, uh, in Asia Minor, where they met Apollos, a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. Apollos was his name. And, uh, 
And Apollos, a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures, spoke with great fervor. He taught the way of Jesus accurately, according to Acts chapter 18. But, according to verse 25, he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. And so look what this couple, who's come from the city of Rome, does with Paul, Apollos, this great leader. And it's very interesting, because Apollos uh, might have been... Uh, uh, might have been a, an apostle himself. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, one of you says, I'm from Cephas. Another one says, I'm of Apollos. Another one says, of Paul. Well, we know Cephas is Peter. And Peter and Paul were apostles. Maybe Apollos, uh, Apollos because he had a great following, was another one of the apostles. I'm not sure. But certainly he was a great leader in the early church. That much we know. And look what this couple does with this man, this, this uh, outstanding man. It says in verse 26 when, of chapter 18, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him, him to their home. And what did they do? They explained to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla's name is almost, wherever you see her in Scripture, it's usually not Aquila and Priscilla, not Ray and Fran, but Priscilla and Aquila, Fran and Ray. Now, in ancient times... Most of the times, whoever was in the lead in the name meant they were the more prominent one in whatever it was discussing. Not 100% of the time, but a great deal of the time. Therefore, many have concluded that she must have been the lead minister in this couple ministry. Now, because we can't prove that 100% of the time, I'm going to grant you that perhaps that isn't the case, though I would lean that way. But even if that isn't the case, one thing we have to admit is that at the very least, together they explained, together they explained the way of God to this scholar, Apollos, more adequately. She wasn't making the tea, and, and, uh, and Aquila was doing all the teaching. Do you know what I mean? In the home. She was part of saying, Apollos, you don't have us quite right here. Let me take you to the scripture. Let me show you what's been happening. She was part of that. At the very least, she was an equal part of that. So clearly, she was a theological teacher of some kind. Go back and tell your daughters about these four women. And we haven't even talked about people like Esther and and, uh, Miriam the prophetess and some of those. But anyway, we got to move on. Now let's... Now let's, with this base firmly established, let's go and delve into these passages. And please, if you've got some strong biases in favor of this, we're not upset at you or anything, but would you do me a favor for the next few minutes? Would you listen carefully with an open mind? Okay? Is that a deal? Yes or no? Okay. If you do, I might even uh, refund some of your offering. No, 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 I won't do that. (laughs) No, I would never do that. (laughs) No, that's not going to happen. Take that back. So here's the first passage. (laughs) Take it out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 to 40. Is this very controversial passage that says women ought to be silent in the church. Well, first of all, I don't know too many churches that even practice that. And so, like, either uh, either you practice that and are consistent with that, or you don't. And so we better find out why we're, none of us, pretty much, are too terribly consistent with this. Uh, Take a look what it says. And this is the controversial passage. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. Whew, that doesn't sound very good, does that? 
Wow. They are not allowed to speak. So if women, if you spoke when you came here today, you are already out of line, according to this passage. But must be in submission, as the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should go and ask their own husbands at home, don't come and ask me in the hallway. I mean, either we believe this or we, okay, like either we're going with this or there better be another explanation. And the reason I'm playing with you like that is be open to what I'm about to say. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Is it really? All right. So is Paul actually saying that women, is, actually, is Paul actually saying what it seems that he's saying? It seems pretty plain. Well, a few clues Four of them, indeed, will help us to see that this isn't the case at all. And it'll become very, very clear. Uh, trust me on this one. Paul, clue number one, had already affirmed men and women ministering in public. He, he said, for example, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, last week as we were looking at the headship issue in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, men, when you prophesy and pray. And then he said, and women, when you what? prophesy or pray or prophesy. He's talking about public ministry there. They could do that. He was talking in the context of public ministry in the church. So any understanding of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 has to be viewed in the context of what Paul said before, as we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and what we just saw that women were doing already in the Old Testament times and in the New Testament times. They have to harmonize. Uh, otherwise, we've just got major contradictions in the scriptures, and then what's the point? So that's the first thing. Clue number two. Now, this is where you really, I want you really to start listening, really carefully. Clue number two, Paul was quoting his opponent's view. So, for example, when it says women should remain silent in the churches, they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission. If they want to inquire about something, they should go and ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. What I'm saying is, Paul was not stating, that was not Paul's view, he was stating his opponent's view. Now you say, that's convenient for you to say that, I'll back it up. If it says that, then we're home free. Would you agree? If he, would you agree? If he's stating, if if that's an opponent's view, then we're home free. Then we realize that what we thought it was saying isn't what it's saying. So let's see if I'm telling the truth or not. One of the, uh, and and so we're going to unpackage it now. One of the leading women of the congregation had alerted Paul regarding the disorders that were taking place within the church at Corinth. So in, in chapter 1 it says, Some from Chloe's household, that's a woman, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says. Okay. Now I'm going to back up and tell you what he's talking about here. Chloe communicated to Paul a summary of some of his opponent's teaching. The reason Paul was writing 1 Corinthians was because there was problems in the church. How did Paul, who was not in Corinth at the time, know that there were problems? It's because some from Chloe's household wrote him and said, this is what's happening. And, she, and they list the things that are wrong. And in some cases, literally quoted what they, these opponents were saying. Now Paul writes a letter to respond to these errors. All right, that helps us with context just a little. And by citing some of, uh, these, uh, some of these sayings or maxims in his epistle, Paul was sure the Corinthians would recognize the teachings of the troublemakers. 
Now, here's the issue. There are no, there is no punctuation in the Greek. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> no question marks, no exclamation marks, no periods, no commas, no apostrophes, no quotation marks in the Greek language. Whoa, that's a bit of a problem for us, isn't it? And yet, if you take your Bibles, how many of you got your Bibles here today? I hope you bring them. Bring them. Bring them to church. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, well, just to 1 Corinthians, you know what you're going to discover in all of your translations? They're filled with quotations. How can they have quotations in there if it's not, if there were, there was no punctuation in the Greek? Well, the reason is because the content and context of what they were saying helped them to realize when they were quoting something. And so the translators going into the English, they did a very good thing here. They, they would put quotation marks or if they were quoting lengthy passages, they would indent it. Have you seen that? Have you sometimes seen that as you're reading the epistles? Almost it's an indented part marked off separately. And then you know that something is being quoted. In 1 Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians there's, some, there's over 25 of those quotes that most of the translators completely agree with, and they can tell from the context and the content. And the reason I used this verse and kept it up there for you is it says, One of you says. Now, when it says, One of you says, what are you expecting after that? A quotation. Exactly right. So you, there's an example of how a translator could very easily see that there is a quotation following, and so they would either put quotation marks for those of us that are English, or they would put it in, a, in an indented form that you could see it very readily. Okay, So what are we establishing? We're establishing the fact that Paul was often dealing with quotes from his opponents. So in this particular case, it says, one of you says, I follow Cephas. One says, I follow Paulus. One says, I follow Paul. And then he, and then he says, no, you're supposed to follow the Lord. <laughs> See, and then he takes on the quotation. In this same passage, we've got the same thing going on. So, so 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 to 35, those difficult verses, describes what Paul's Judaizer opponents believed, and I'm going to show you what Judaizers believed about women. Here's four things that are coming up on the screen right now. Number one, they believed the Talmud, their writings uh, and comments on the book of the law, were an extra set of writings that they, that they recorded. The Talmud stated that women weren't even qualified to be learners in the assembly. In other words, you women shouldn't even be here. That's what the Judaizers believed. Now, you wouldn't, want a Judaizer, you wouldn't want to be married to a Judaizer, would you? A male, would you? No. And so in Judaism, they were barely tolerated. Number two, in Judaism, husbands were their wives' sole resource for obtaining information. Only males received religious education. Number three, in Judaism, women... <clears throat> were to ask questions of their husbands in the seclusion of their own homes. This is in their writings. Not in the church or even in the street. That's in their writings. And not in this set of writings. That was in their own extra-biblical writings. And number four, the Judaizers often troubled the churches 
that Paul established in Gentile territory, this was just another example. So, for example, Paul would go and establish brand new churches in Gentile territory, and the Judaizers, remember, they would often come to, this, uh, to, to the place where Paul was teaching about the gospel and setting people free and stuff, and then they'd say, no, 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 no. You, uh, in addition to the gospel, you also have to follow the laws of Moses, and you have to be circumcised and stuff. And Paul would go, oh, these guys are such a pain in the neck. <laughs> right? They're such a pain. Oh, man, he got so upset they even had to have a council in Acts chapter 15 to deal with these Judaizers because they were always causing trouble about stuff. And here they were doing the same thing about women. They're saying, oh, these women, they're nothing. They're just chattel mortgage and, you know, they should be quiet and stay at home and all this kind of stuff. And Paul says, I've been preaching that they're set free uh, to, for mutual submission in the marriage and for ministry uh, of the gospel. Jesus was doing the same thing. And now you guys are trying to enslave them again. And that's, the, that's, the, um, the, that's what's uh, taking place there. Here's clue number three. So we've looked at Paul had already affirmed men and women to be minister. Number two, Paul was actually quoting his opponent's views. Number three, I'm going to say something about grammar. Put on your grammar hats now. (laughs) How many of you wish you now remembered what you had been taught? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But you can get it back. I'll I'll give you a little lesson here, and and you can all do really good. I know you will, but you got to get this. Clue number three, the disjunctive particle A, that's a Greek word, just say A, because that's you're Canadians, you can say that, right? <laughs> Supports the idea that this is an opponent's view. I just said it's an opponent's view, but now I'm going to I'm going to demonstrate even further that this is a, an opponent's view. It has the impact of an emphatic repudiation of what precedes it, and unfortunately, in most of the translations, although I will show you one that ha- does have it, most of the translations don't. Translate it. And the reason they don't translate it, the A is right in there, that little A, but they don't translate it is because it's an emotional outburst. It, it's not really transla- not easily transba- translatable. It's just an outburst. It just means nonsense, bunk. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? What's the matter with you? You could translate it in all those kinds of things because it's just an emotional outburst of repudiation of what has just been said. So whatever has been said, then comes the word A, which means, that's bunk. (laughs) Do you get it? Are you with me so far? Okay, now let's go ahead and read that passage again. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak to the church. A! (laughs) Nonsense! Bunk! That's ridiculous! Do you see? Paul's not, Paul's not agreeing with it. He's disagreeing with it. And not only is he disagreeing with it, he's disagreeing with it in the strongest terms possible. He's having an emotional breakdown or meltdown. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing in a good way. So, the RSV actually captures the idea well. If you, if you use an RSV, it says, What? 
Did the word of God originate with you, or did you, uh, are you the only ones that it has reached? Do you hear the sarcastic tone of repudiation? Here's another example of where he does this in 1 Corinthians on a completely different topic. You'll see, you'll see just how clear this is. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6.15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You remember reading that pa- passage? Yeah, when we become saved, we're members of Christ. Now look what it says next. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And your jaw drops, and you're supposed to go, Never! Eh! (laughs) You're supposed to repudiate what's just been said. No! (laughs) In the strongest terms possible. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. Clue number four. The shift from the third person feminine. Oh, shoot, you're saying not more grammar. Yes, but it's fun grammar, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you, don't you wish you had been taught grammar like this? You could have yelled in class and all that. All right. The shift from third person feminine to second person masculine supports the idea that this is an opponent's view. All right, uh, next slide, please. All right, let's take a little grammar lesson. First person plural is what? We. we. And second person plural is? And if you're in the lobby, it's third person plural? They. Very, ah, you know your grammar very well. Very good. Now, having learned the grammar lesson, let's go to verse 34. Women should remain silent. And of course, we already know that this, you know, we're already knowing that this, this is the opponent's view. Women should remain silent in the churches. What's the next word? Third person, plural, right? They are not allowed. Feminine, obviously, referring to the women, but must be in submission, as the law says, if what? They want to inquire about something. They, the women, third person, plural, should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Nonsense. Does the word uh, of God originate with, uh uh-oh, it goes now to second person, masculine, plural. Switched from third person, feminine, they women, and now it goes to you what? You men. Why men? It's those crazy Judaizers. And, he sa- and, he- and he's giving him a little bit of a tongue lashing. First of all, he says, nonsense with your quote. And then he says, Do you, does the word of God originate with you, second person, plural, masculine, men, Judaizers, not you men. You're good men. But those Judaizer men, uh, do you men, uh, did the word of God originate with you men, or are you men the only men, uh, the only people that it has reached? Oh, he is upset. He's losing his cool. This indicates that Paul is now taking to task a male element in the Corinthian church rather than rebuking the women. So people have often read that because it just says, you, 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 or they and you, but you can't tell if it's masculine or feminine because it's in the English. In the English, we don't separate them between masculine and feminine, so you can't tell when it's the women and when it's the men. But when you look at the Greek, then you can tell that it's when it's masculine, when it is feminine, And so now he is taking on the men, those men, the bad ones. And this is sarcastic outburst from Paul directed at male Corinthian Judaizers who are calling into question Paul's own apostolic teaching about women. 
Verse 36 could be paraphrased, since when have you, Judaizer men, become the source of divine revelation so that you make up your own rules? Paul says, you're going against everything that I'm teaching. This is wrong. Then Paul continues his tongue lashing against these Judaizer opponents. You want to hear more of the tongue lashing? Sure, let's read more of it. So he continues, verse 37, if you, what? Judaizer men, claim to be a prophet or think you are spiritual, you should recognize that what I, am, uh, what I am saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you, Judaizer men, do not recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. Now, some manuscripts, some Greek manuscripts say, if you are ignorant of this, then stay in your ignorance. In modern idiom terms, we would say, if you want to be an idiot, then just go ahead and be an idiot. <laughs> That's how we would say it, Right? And Paul's saying it in no uncertain terms. Man, he's laying it out there, eh? (laughs) He's letting him have it. So Paul was angry with these men who were opposing the work of God and enslaving the very ones that Paul, by means of the gospel, was setting free. Let's go to the last one. Uh, So does that passage now make more sense? This is an opponent's view, and Paul's lambasting it. He's mad with it. He agrees with you. (laughs) All right, let's go to the, the uh, last one. Found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, particularly in verses 11 to 15. And this is what it says. Woman would, uh, should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now comes a real baffling one. But women will be saved through childbearing. So we need four spiritual laws for the men and one spiritual law for the women. Bear a child and you will be saved. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it appears to be saying, right? But let's find out what it's actually saying, all right? So let's take a closer look at this prohibition. There is overwhelming evidence in the New Testament, and we're setting the context here, that the Ephesian church was the site of acute crisis created by a massive influx of false teaching. So Paul warned the elders that fierce wolves would come among them and not spare the flock, and that from among them would arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So, for example, in 2 Timothy 2, and he does this in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, several places, but here's an example. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like what? Gangrene, very good. And among them are Hymenaeus. He even names the guys. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine if I did that? Jake. <laughs> Ooh. And Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they, what do they do because of their false teaching? They destroy the faith of some. That's how dangerous false teaching is. And they were having a terrible time with it in Ephesus. In fact, the very existence of the church was at stake. It didn't look like it was going to make it. And so Paul uh, gets very strong about some of these things. He says in his letter to the church at Ephesus, that's what he was writing, Timothy, about the church, but Timothy was a leader. Now he writes to the church itself, and he exhorted the church not to be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. 
However, Paul's worst fears were realized as the church reeled under the impact of various false teachings resulting in the defection of people. And let me say something about false teaching. It has always been a problem in the church. Throughout the history of the church, it's been a problem, and it is a problem in the church today. And we lose people here at Southland and other churches in this region do too, due to false teaching that comes through the television and through books and, uh, and through just contact with certain people that teach and spread these things. And it causes great grief in the church. still does, and that's why we have to be so careful with this. And that's why we try to teach you at a level that, that goes beyond just superficial stuff to equip you to be able to handle it. But anyway, eventually the church at Ephesus countered such assaults successfully. Undoubtedly, it was the restrictive measures prescribed by the apostle to Timothy that played a decisive part in the survival of the church. And at the core of Paul's strategy was this. The elimination of all unqualified or deviant would-be teachers, male and female. Okay? So this was Paul's strategy. In dealing with a false doctrine, he said, You have got to stop false teachers, Timothy. You've got to stop them. Because it's killing the church. So, for example, he says in 1 Timothy 1.3, take a look what he says. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may, help me now, command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. He said, tell them to be quiet. Command them, stop them, don't let them teach anymore. You see that? He said the same thing to Titus, uh, who was stationed in, on the Isle of Crete. He wasn't in Ephesus. He was on the Isle of Crete. And look what he said to him. He says, there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Circumcision group, you know who that is? Yeah, those, oh, those Judaizer guys. <laughs> that is the group that I was talking about exactly. And he said, they must be what? Silenced. Because they are ruining the whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And with such a prohibition in place, the church's teaching ministry would be carried out by a small group or retinue of reliable men, or uh, no, sorry, not men, reliable people who would take from Timothy the teaching he had received from Paul and transmit it to others. So Paul says, stop and shut them down, don't let them talk anymore, and let's go with a small group of key teachers for the church who are reliable, who will pass on the truth. Reliably. Does that make sense? Does that not sound like a good strategy, church? Yes or no? That's why we don't just put everybody and anybody up here. we got to be careful with this thing. We could be all over the map. So in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that's exactly what he says. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Evidently, the restrictions placed on women to be quiet also applied to the male members of the Ephesian church in the spirit of James 3, which says, Dear brothers and sisters, not what many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Because women in ancient, and, and here's the key now, because women, so, so he, he's just said, look, silence those false 
teachers, those men, because they're not qualified to teach and keep it to a few reliable, and he's saying, women, and you be quiet. Well, we're going to see more about that, but already we're starting to see a context that looks a little different than just women be quiet. True? Church? Yeah? Because women in ancient cultures were refused education, they were particularly ripe for deception, which obviously led to false teaching. We've talked about that in the last few weeks. This fact agrees well with Paul's illustration of Eve's error in the garden. So then he gives an illustration of the point he's trying to make to them. And he uses Eve. And you say, what does that have to do with this? Well, that's what we're going to find out. It says, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the what? Who was the woman? Good, very good. Who was deceived and became a sinner. And then it gets to that, that verse 15. We're going to get to that right away. Okay, just hang in there. Adam was held more accountable because he sinned knowingly. Who was created first, Adam or Eve? Good. You know what happened chronologically next? It says that God spoke to Adam and he said, In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? That happened before Eve was created. Then Eve is created. And when God spoke to Adam, I don't think he just said, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. Did you, did you get that? Good. Have a Coke and leave. No, 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 no. He sat down and gave him a lesson, a lecture, a message. And explained it to him. Adam got it firsthand. Eve didn't. And so the serpent obviously went to her. She got it secondhand. And so he's using her as an example in the same way as you, as, as Eve didn't get it firsthand, and so she was susceptible, susceptible to error because she hadn't heard it firsthand. She needed to get that. In the same way, you women who be, have been excluded, you better be careful. Decept- you are liable to deception because you haven't been taught properly. That's why he's using Eve as an example, as an illustration. Does that make sense so far? Okay, very good. Oh, I like it when you say yes. Whew. <laughs> that really helps me. So women were to learn before they were taught, just like the men. Now, let's look at this baffling statement of verse 15. You know, the part where it says, but women will be saved through childbearing. The phrase, but women. Okay, you see an X. I've put an X through the word women. Do you know why? Because it is in the singular, she, uh, so third person singular feminine it's not it's not it doesn't say women behind the translation it says she the antecedent for she is what the woman who is eve it should be translated but she eve will be saved through childbearing well you say well that's a little better that's a little clearer but that and and then it abruptly uh, turns into uh, a, a plural in, in just a second. But before we get to that, okay, should be translated she. Why? Because it's third person singular feminine, she. Though Eve was a transgressor, she will be saved from the effects of her transgression through her childbearing abilities. In other words, this, follow me now, follow me now, okay? Did Eve transgress the law? Yes or no? She transgressed, she was a sinner, True. Now, because of that, she's going to die in her sins. True? But God says to her, through your childbearing uh, 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 abilities, 
functions in your body, you will give birth to a redeemer who will save you from the effects of your transgressions. Do you see that? I mean, that's pure gospel right in the book of Genesis and as we find it in Timothy. Okay, let's find it in Genesis. Is that actually what happened? Uh, and and uh, who would save her? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, he's talking about the Redeemer, will crush your head, the serpent's head, the Satan, and you, Satan, will cr- strike his, Redeemer's, heel, which is on the cross. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Eve held within her the means for the salvation of the world and herself, did she not? Though she transgressed, she... She held within her the means of the salvation for both her and the whole world. The Redeemer would come through her, uh, down her line. And so, this is, and then, and then the second part of the verse moves from consideration of Eve's destiny to a practical application for Ephesian women. So, uh, look, look what it says. But she, Eve, third person singular feminine, will be saved through childbearing. And now it switches if they, plural women, continue in faith, love, and holiness. And you say, wait a minute. Why does he switch from the, from the singular uh, feminine to the plural feminine? Why is he doing that? Oh, this is not a mistake. It's a be- He's crafting something very beautiful. He's crafting something very, very beautiful. He's saying this. Here's a powerful nugget of truth embedded in it, and I don't want you to miss it. Here it is. Just as Eve was restored by means of her childbearing function, so too the Ephesian women will be restored to their equal ministry roles that they were created for all along once they are properly discipled by learning in quietness and submission. There it is. He's connecting the two. And he says, just like even though Eve was transgressed, there was hope, a Redeemer was coming out to save her, and just like you women have been suppressed, I want you to know that if you will learn in quietness and submission, the gospel sets you free, and if you will do that, then you will be able to participate in ministry the way you were intended to in the first place. You will be restored to that place of ministry. Ha ha! Praise the Lord! Church? I had a woman, after this last service, seminary training, followed me out the door with tears streaming down her face. And she said, thank you for setting me free today. Because churches won't have me. And churches won't let me use the training that I have. That's sad, isn't it? That's very sad. So, then the teaching prohibition would no longer apply since they would have achieved qualifications also required of their male counterparts. For example, the very next verses are found in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It follows right in chapters 1 and 2. And he gives the qualifications for male elders. For example, the overseer must be, and that's there it's talking about a male, must be above reproach, the husband of one and wife, obviously, temperate, uh, self-controlled, respectable, hospital, able to teach, and it gives a whole list for three verses. And so he's saying, look at. Women, you have to be qualified in order to teach. So go back and learn that because you didn't have the opportunity and then you'll be qualified. Then in the very next verses, he starts talking about the men. And you men, you can't just teach because you're a male. 
you also have to qualify. And then he lists the qualifications. Do you see how he puts it together? And we stop it because of this artificial stuff, uh, you know, chapter divisions and stuff that are not inspired. They were not in the original. All right, I've got to wrap this thing up. A century ago, internationally prominent evangelical, a century ago. Did you hear what I just said? That's not very long ago. Internationally prominent evangelical leaders, Western leaders, established Bible institutes that dominated their evangelical movements. D.L. Moody in Chicago, A.B. Simpson in New York. He, by the way, is the one who formed the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination that went all around the world. We've got that denomination right here in Canada. And some of the larger churches in the West are aligned, you know, 2,000, 2,500 uh, people in the, in the church are alliance churches. I'm friends with a couple of them. And they come from this movement. A.B. Simpson, A.J. Gordon in Boston, W.B. Riley in Minneapolis. And these schools became the training grounds for evangelical women to enter all forms of public church ministry, including preaching, pastoring, and ordaining women for ministry. Free Methodist, Wesleyan Methodist, Church of Nazarene, Salvation Army, and a variety of Baptist groups and newly formed Pentecostal denominations all promoted equality for women in ministry. Even the Evangelical Free Church denomination formed in the 1880s utilized women as evangelists, teachers, and pastors. Bible conferences regularly featured women speakers. This was not a movement to accommodate changing uh, culture, you know, feminism. It was motivated by a deeply held belief that Jesus was returning soon and all hands were needed to bring in the harvest. And their exegetical beliefs were anchored firmly in Joel 2 and Acts 2. And this is what they believed. And it wasn't just Pentecostals or Charismatics. It was, it was many groups. And uh, let's, if we could have the next slide there, please. It says in Acts 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons, and help me will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams even on my servants, both men and what? Women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And from such movements came the likes of Catherine Booth, Phoebe Palmer, and Hannah Whittle-Swift. Let me just say something about uh, Catherine Booth as an example. You need to read some of these biographies and autobiographies and let your daughters read them as well. But Catherine Booth, she was the wife of the famous William Booth of the Salvation Army. True? And uh, uh, what many of you probably don't know is that uh, William Booth ministered to the inner city of London. And uh, many of the down-and-outers, and there was no, of course, they had no money. Do you know what Catherine Booth did at the exact same time? Every Sunday, she went to the wealthy side of London and preached to some of the most wealthy people in all of London. Took their offerings, took them back to the inner city, and gave them to William Booth to help him with his inner city work. She was a powerful preacher. They raised, uh, uh, they raised uh, uh, a bunch of uh, daughters, as, uh, 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 you know, uh, great kids and daughters, and, and several of them became the heads of the Salvation Army in different countries. One of them, who was single, I think the oldest one, and I don't remember the name, I didn't go back and rehearse it, I'm just doing it off the top of my head. Uh, she became the head of the Salvation Army in in the U.S., she was so dominant and she was so influential and the Salvation Army at that time was so influential in the U.S. at the time that she became well acquainted with three of the sitting presidents and was off and frequently invited into the White House. 
That's how powerful. That's what was happening a century ago. But despite all that gain between the two wars, this trend reversed. Why? It was a reaction to vocal extreme feminism and perceived decline and a perceived decline in womanhood. And so evangelicals, particularly fueled by the fundamentalists that came up at the time and and that were fighting liberalism and stuff, and so they got really entrenched, and they became very legalistic. Fran and I had some contact with that back in our 20s. Feared that cultural trends toward women's freedom in dress, habits, morals, and occupations might destroy the family. And uh, so as churches identified women preachers and pastors with a secular women's movement, opposition arose, and as a result... Freedoms won for women in ministry were reversed. Let me give you an example. March 18th, 1980, I've told you the story about how I got called to ministry. What I'm about to tell you, I've never told you. When I was called to ministry, all 52 of the guys that were called were called forward to stand on the stage in the 6,000-seat auditorium. We stood on the stage, lined up on stage, and I remember a woman walking down one of the center aisles of this huge church. And the pastor stood up and he pointed at her and he said, what do you want? And she said, I got called too. And he said, no, you didn't. Go back and sit down. That's what's happened. It's a disgrace what has happened. I remember growing up in church in this region. It doesn't matter which church because this was this prevalent with a lot of the churches. Women can't speak and women can't, couldn't do a lot of things. But you know one, what women could? The ones who went to the mission field under that time a century ago. They went to the mission field and they did everything that they're not allowed to do on this continent. And then they came back and they were allowed to testify or give a report on what they were doing over there that they were not allowed to do here. There's something wrong. I have literally cried in my office over this thing. A whole gender re-enslaved. But the pendulum has been slowly swinging back. And on our staff, we're not anywhere close to that yet. We never have any women speaking here. I've, I've... well, I won't say what I was about to say. It doesn't matter. Grace, Grace Fast, Fran Dirksen, Eunice McAllister, Gladys Penner, Dana Lowen, Monique DeSorcy, Connie Chansantonio, Grace Hebert are all key women pastors and leaders at Southland. But the evangelical church has lost an entire generation of potential female pastors, teachers, and evangelists. And because they couldn't even consider it, many were no longer even open to the call of God on their lives. It's something God couldn't possibly ask, they reasoned. And so they haven't. And don't even train for it, meaning that even when we open the door to them, they're not ready to assume such roles. Because that hasn't even been part of the equation. And what worries me is now we've got daughters and granddaughters growing up. And it's time that we, as a church, repent on behalf of the whole church and ourselves of these attitudes that are not biblical. Jesus died. The gospel is to set them free. And we need to repent of that, and then we need to go back and tell our daughters and granddaughters the truth, and then prepare them for whatever calling God has, according to the gifts and the calling that he has for them, just like men. Amen, church? That's what we need. 
And then we need to pray that God will raise them up too because the harvest is huge. The time is short, and we need all hands on deck. Lord Jesus, help us towards that end. We repent of those attitudes on behalf of ourselves, but also of the entire church in the West. We ask your forgiveness, and we say, Lord, we'll work in cooperation with you to open the doors and release the women that you are calling for whatever you're calling them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.